friends, welcome to episode 11 of Womankind. We are officially in the double digits, and that is really exciting. Um, I'm here today with my guest, Kate Connolly. Say hi, Kate. Hi, guys. Um, and we are going to talk all about Kate's life in a moment. Um, I just wanted to, again, put a call out there for anyone who's interested in being a guest, or anyone who has a friend who's interested in being a guest, or anyone that just has any pressing issue that you'd like for us to talk about on Womankind, you can contact us via Facebook, um, via Instagram, or on our website, which is womankindpodcast.com, or email us at womankindpodcast at gmail. So those are all the ways you can get in touch. All right, so we're going to talk about Kate now. Uh, and she is a bartender in a local establishment, and so we are first just going to talk a little bit about what it's like to work in the food service industry. Um, and I think, I think that everyone should, at some point in their lives, be required to have to work in the food service industry. I, <laughs> I think it's just a good experience to have to be on like the other side of things. But Kate, tell us a little bit about what your experience is like and what it, what just kind of paint a picture of what it's like to work in the food service industry. Okay. So I think I got into the food service industry, like most people do out of necessity. Um, I was, you know, 16, maybe in my first food service job and I was not college bound really. Um, and I didn't have a lot of money, so it was actually a very quick and easy way to just make fast cash. Mm -hmm. And it's actually quite lucrative, so people stay in it. I mean, I work with people who have doctorate's degrees um, and are looking for work at Roswell and things like that, and mm -hmm. they actually really enjoy working in restaurants. Um, but most people do, uh, do do it for long periods of time because they are not college educated, um, which is fine. A lot of people, I think, poo-poo service industry jobs because they don't require a professional degree or anything like that, but really, like, it's a very good way to meet people that you otherwise wouldn't surround yourself with. Uh, you meet anybody from professionals to, you know, mothers to um, independently wealthy people to, you know, people that just got out of prison. Um, and you commiserate with those people and you, uh, you know, talk about your lives and share stories and it's really great. Um, you also have a camaraderie with your coworkers. Um, yeah, you're kind of all like in it together. Yeah. I like I remember that from I used to work at Tim Hortons back in the day, and that like after a morning shift, like on the drive-through, you just it was like after it was like being in a war zone basically. At the end of it, you would just like all go in the back and just kind of like catch your breath and. I mean, maybe that was a little over dramatic, but it was, it was definitely like you're in it together and it's like an interesting bond that you have, like you said, with people that maybe you would never um, have otherwise come across. Yeah, exactly. Um, like I said, I've met so many different people just through either serving them drinks or food or working with them that like I never would have, you know, formed a bond with in school or in just my social circle, my core social circle. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course I'm like one of these people that thinks about everything. So I, you know, I really take those experiences to heart and I think about them a lot and I think about how they affect my life. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, mostly they've been very good experiences and I'm happy for the people that I've met through mm -hmm. these jobs. Nice. 
Now, I before you were talking about how you kind of see it working in like a restaurant or a bar as like an allegory for kind of like human life or American oh, life. It's, it's absolutely. If you look at a restaurant, how most restaurants operate, um, you have young women mostly in front of the house and the more visible positions, young women or young men, more, I think increasingly it's been young men bartending more. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of like the highest position in the front of house is, you know, in the front of house hierarchy is like you have the bartender, you have the servers, and then you have the floor manager who is usually not making as much money as the servers and bartenders are, which is strange. Oh, that's interesting. Um, is that like because of tips or yes oh okay yeah it's all this like tipped hierarchy so um and then in the back of house you in the less visible positions you have mostly people of color uh you have refugees you have um you know black men usually on the kitchen line mm -hmm. uh and then you have some women who are usually confined to like a salad making position oh interesting so it is a uh, a construct that obviously you can apply to other facets of society, mm -hmm. um, and usually the the owner is an older white male. So that's quite the microcosm there. <laughs> yeah, is, yeah. I mean, we I've heard that story before, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, well, I was mentioning before that. Um, I feel like, like as with, with teaching, working in a restaurant or a bar is something that most people just assume that they know everything about. So, like, you know, people, when they ask me questions about teaching, you can tell it's, it's the questions they're asking sometimes are very much formulated on their own experience in a classroom. And they're just like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I went to school. And I feel like people that have not worked in the food service industry sometimes make that same assumption that they just, they're like, yeah, I've been to a restaurant, so of course I know whatever is going on back there, um, but maybe they don't. <laughs> no, they definitely don't. They know how to sit at a bar and drink a Negroni and, and eat some ahi tuna, but they have no idea the amount of work that actually goes into it. And that's actually not the customer's job. You're supposed to afford True. the customer the privilege of like just having a show and having mm -hmm. some good food that they didn't have to cook for themselves, and they pay more for the experience, mm -hmm. and that's the way it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, um, in that process, there's a whole lot of open discrimination, um, like tipping is very discriminatory, mm -hmm. uh, the way servers perceive how uh, tables that may or may not tip them is extremely discriminatory. Mm -hmm. um, That's, I mean, tipping is such an interesting concept, and I mean, is it, I think it's like pretty unique to the United States, like in Europe, there's just, people just don't tip. And it, people that work in restaurants, um, it's assumed that they make a living wage. And I mean, I don't know. I had, when I went to Iceland, I had kind of weird experiences there. We, we really were not sure what to do. And we were almost afraid that maybe tipping would be offensive. I don't know. It, it's kind of a weird, I think the United States is, the, is one of the only countries where it is like such a major component of going to a restaurant. Yeah, it, and it's strange, too. Not only is it really discriminatory, um, because people will tip you based on how you look and mm -hmm. how you obviously present yourself, and, you know, that's widely accepted as a practice here. Mm -hmm. And um, whether that's wrong or not is really kind of invalid because it's just so accepted. Um, 
but what was I going to say? Where was I going with this? Um, it's almost offensive that people think that because you're in a tipped wage position, they're tipping you because it's almost a charity. When really you're performing a service and like you expect like it's a discretionary service fee. Mm -hmm. um, but well, people do see it as like a charity, like, oh, this poor girl, she's, you know, 29 and bartending. You know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, you've raised like a couple really good points here. Like it is like you're performing a service and you should tip someone for performing a service, but it's also at the same time a presentation and almost a performance. And then the people who are receiving the performance then are rating you on it. And that's, I mean, just that's, thinking of it that way is just like, so, so are you re required to do these certain things in order to get a good tip? I mean, um, you are, but. <laughs> that's another thing is also, um, what we were going into with this, with the mm -hmm. sexual harassment is customers will sexually harass you and they'll mm -hmm. say, you know, pretty gross things to you and they'll expect that because they're waving a $20 bill in your face that you're just going to accept it mm -hmm. and that you're just going to smile and nod and um, be complicit and, mm -hmm. you know, do as they say. And there are quite a few people out there like that. Most people are very nice, mm -hmm. but there are definitely people who will abuse you just mm -hmm. because they know that they can buy your dignity, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's awful. That's <laughs> just really awful. And then... I, I, as a, a server or as a bartender, that puts you in such an awkward position because you are, I mean, performing a service, but, like, at what cost, I guess, is the question. Yeah, and, you know, I used to, when I was younger, kind of smile and nod and just kind of slink away into the kitchen and kind of hide from guests that were making mm -hmm. me uncomfortable and saying rude things to me or, uh, like, just overtly sexual things to me mm -hmm. and just hope that when I came back out of the kitchen they would like change the subject mm -hmm. and um, after actually having an experience working with a girl who was the first open feminist that I met in Buffalo mm -hmm. um, like a man would tell her to smile and she would say don't tell me how to do my job mm -hmm. and you know they'd either laugh mm -hmm. or uh, they feel like really embarrassed mm -hmm and backpedal and say, oh my god, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it like that. Mm -hmm. And she'd just be like, yeah, yeah. And, and then that would be it? Well, she got called a, a B all the time. I don't know if I can say that word on here. Um, we try not to. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, there were people that definitely would avoid her. Mm -hmm. um, but she, she didn't even say anything, you know, rude. She that was just, like, matter of fact. Yeah, like, she... You know, your expectation is not to tell somebody how to do their job. It's to sit there and be a good, you know, polite customer. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, is part of the job smiling? Like, is that, that's, okay. Oh yes, that I, is part of the I job. I hate but... when people say that to me. I have many times been, you know, in, in a bar or, like, been somewhere where I was just, like, ready to go home and just tired and then... I have someone come up to me and say, oh, what's wrong? Why aren't you smiling? Like, wh why? <laughs> and it's none of your business. But, like, you know, but when you're at work, of course, like, you know, mm -hmm. obviously, like we talked about this being a performance, you are expected to smile and be polite to guests mm -hmm. and like that is, you know, but I mean, 
you should be afforded the same respect by the right. Yes, um, definitely. You know, and nobody should tell you how to position your body or move your face muscles, in right. my opinion. So, and I think, I don't pe- think people actually say those things to actually, like, get you to smile so they can enjoy your smile. I think that they say those things to, like, make you feel uncomfortable. And to exert power over you in and, yes. some way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's the, the matter of, well, I'm paying you for this, so this is what I deserve. Yeah, exactly. But then, at the same turn, I'm always, well, I'm, you know, nice to servers because I'm a decent human being and because I'm friendly in general. Um, but also, you always have to consider that these are the people that are handling your food. <laughs> That's something that I do think about. If you're mean to someone, you know, they, they've got some power in that situation too. <laughs> they, they do. Um, but I've actually never seen anything to I've heard stories about like, you know, people running rubbing the dinner buns oh, between their butt cheeks and stuff like that. But like so definitely crazy. not at any places that I've worked with. But mm-hmm. you know you never know. I mean, I in my experiences, I don't know that I've done this personally, but I've seen people, you know, purposely give someone like a really stale donut or something like that when they were, you know, given some sass on the, the drive through. So never anything like disgusting or anything like that but definitely you know um selective in what they have chosen to give that customer oh yeah i mean that happens all the time you don't prioritize people who are rude to you and actually when somebody as i was saying about like leaving to go in the kitchen and just kind of hide for a second when somebody makes you feel uncomfortable obviously like you're not out on the floor like serving that person you're just like trying to avoid them Mm -hmm. and they're not getting good service so you know but maybe they're getting the experience they want by, you know, seeing you put your tail between your legs and, like, put your head down. Like, they have some kind of control over you. Yeah, and that's, for some people, that's maybe part of the experience that they enjoy, which is kind of sick. It is sick. Mm-hmm. It's sadistic. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, I people always say, like, you know, if you're, like, dating someone new or something to, like, watch how they treat wait staff and mm-hmm. people that are in those positions because it tells you what kind of person they are. Oh, yeah. And I think that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's the same with anything. Like, people who just treat somebody that they don't know and they may never see again, you know, badly. Mm-hmm. What does that say about anybody, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a... You can definitely, and in meeting a whole lot of people, you kind of get an idea how they are to, like, their spouses and their children by how they treat you. Definitely. You do, uh, you do actually think about that. The way some people um, act in a restaurant mm-hmm. makes you worry for their families. <laughs> wow, I feel like you can do a lot of like anthropological studies oh, like, in it's a like restaurant. being a social curator. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I definitely would observe things like this when I worked in the, the various coffee shops that I worked in. Like you, you would get to know people on a, a, a different level than in, like, everyday life. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we're talking a lot about uh, customers, but also the people that you work with. It can be very challenging, you know. Mm -hmm. And like I said, in this production and in the front of house and you're serving customers, uh, you have to learn how to deal with a lot of different personalities, and it's the same with your coworkers. And I know you Mm -hmm. know that from your job as well, like, you just Definitely. deal with, you know, you deal with certain people that, um, 
are just very difficult mm-hmm. and but some of it gets abusive as well and mm-hmm. unfortunately in restaurants it's completely acceptable to touch your coworkers inappropriately mm-hmm. and these are things that people just accept happen in restaurants and in kitchens and um it's absolutely not okay, no matter what anybody tells you. I mean, I remember the first restaurant I ever worked in. Um, the hiring manager joked about sexual harassment forms, and she's like, oh, we deleted those from the computer years ago. Ha ha ha. It's like, okay. Um, <laughs> wow, great. Hope I never need that. <laughs> yeah, like reporting sexual harassment is a joke. Uh, but it should be done, and basically... Um, so if that, so, I mean, you can talk about this from personal experience if you have it or just like what you've witnessed. Um, so if there's an incident among coworkers or even among patrons in the restaurant, what happens if you do go to a superior and report it? What is the follow-up? I actually have an experience with this. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) It was Quite a while ago, I was working in a restaurant in Philadelphia, and I was working overnights, because a lot of restaurants there are 24 hours, um, Mm -hmm. with a cook who I guess, like, had a thing for me, Mm -hmm. Um, and it was okay, like, nothing bad ever came of it, Mm -hmm. until I went into the walk-in cooler one night to grab pancake batter, and he followed me in there and grabbed my face and shoved his tongue down my throat. Oh my god! And... Yeah, so I was immediately like, okay, gotta get away from you. Uh, Yeah, so it was really gross. I felt sick to my stomach, and uh, the next day, I went to the owner of the restaurant, who was a white man, (laughs) who was friends with this cook, Mm -hmm. um, and I told him what had happened, and I don't feel comfortable working with this guy, we'll call him Bobby, Mm -hmm. Um, don't feel comfortable working with this guy anymore. And I worked, mm-hmm. the only night that I worked with him was Saturday night. Of course, that's my best shift. Right. He's like, oh, okay. And he was like, you know, curiously calm mm-hmm. about it. I expected him to be kind of outraged about it. And uh, the next time I saw my schedule, I was taken off my best shift, which was Saturday nights. And when I went to my boss and asked him why, he said it was because you didn't want to work with this cook anymore. So you're the one that has to And then I was like, yeah, well, and then I was like, well, did you change his schedule too? And he was like, that's not your business. And it, lo and behold, of course, he's still working Saturday night, so. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I suppose there are some situations where nothing would happen, but still, that's not good enough. <laughs> no. So, of course, like, most people just decide to shut up about it and not say anything and like you know they're kind of just restrained by these golden handcuffs and there are you know the point I'm trying to make is that there are very real social consequences to reporting sexual harassment and um being that a lot of times in the restaurant industry you work with more vulnerable people you know you work with people who are supporting three children on you know on these Saturday nights that they so desperately need um, when they're being treated that way, are people with people who work with them who have maybe greater financial privilege or are able to maybe talk to a boss in a way that that person isn't as effective need right. to advocate for that person okay. and they need to stand up and say something mm-hmm. because that culture really desperately needs to change. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
because um, you you can lose your job. Right. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it happen. And it's just a matter of, in that case, that, you know, the boss or whoever just, like, doesn't want to deal with it. And so it, their way of dealing with it is kind of pushing someone out so they don't have to address the problem. Yeah, and that's why they should just be held accountable by their staff. Right. You know, right. Um, nobody should touch you. Nobody should be able to make comments to you. Um, and if you can't stand up for yourself, and if you're not comfortable standing up for yourself, you need to talk some, to somebody that might be able to do it for you. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So that's, we're kind of like in the, the realm that I wanted to get into because I know, like, you know, I don't think anyone would deny that sexual harassment happens, like I said earlier, both from patrons and from other employees in restaurants, but um, I wanted to talk about solutions. And so I like that, that having someone else, having people to advocate for people who are more vulnerable is, is a good direction. Uh, but what are some other solutions that you could potentially, I'm asking you because I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if you really, you know, if you feel comfortable in telling somebody, and you should, mm -hmm. I, I feel like you should be able to feel comfortable in telling somebody, please don't touch me. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely. And what I think is helpful is when other people demonstrate those things. Like when I was talking about this bartender that I worked with that said, don't tell me how to do my job when a man mm -hmm. asked her to smile or told her to smile. Mm -hmm. That really inspired me. You right. know, that was, you know, just seeing one person shoot somebody down or, you know, mm -hmm. tell them what they think or, you know, and in a polite way, not, you know, you don't have to be overly aggressive about mm -hmm. it, you know, because it's not necessary. Just tell people what you expect and don't expect of them. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, uh, I'm one of the people that is more comfortable with telling somebody uh, that they're being inappropriate, and I right. won't hesitate to actually. I would imagine that you would be one of those people. <laughs> yeah, I actually, <laughs> I don't hesitate to actually, like, ask somebody to leave if they're being inappropriate or abusive, mm -hmm. um, and other people will see me doing that, and they'll say, well, actually, the last time, it was not a sexual harassment thing at all. It was a man sitting at a table in front of the bar saying the F word, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, extremely offensive to, mm -hmm. you know, a gay man who was sitting at the bar, mm -hmm. um, and he heard it first, and he told me about it, and I went up to the table, and I asked them to leave, mm -hmm. because they were offending people sitting at the bar, and um, I remember the host that day saying, oh my god, like, you're my hero, like, I've never, I've never heard of anybody doing that before, and I was mm -hmm. like, what? Like, that's crazy, but um, people are afraid to speak up. I mean, if you, they said this about terrorism, if you see something, if you hear something, say something. Mm -hmm. And other people will follow suit. Like, I definitely have had, you know, co-workers see me doing those things that will come up to me later and tell me, oh, yeah, this man touched my hand, and I told him not to touch me. And he got really embarrassed. <laughs> I love this. Wife. This is building, <laughs> building a culture. Yeah, and it does. I feel like it, and I didn't even expect it to be like that, but mm -hmm. it does. Pe you having the confidence to tell somebody not to mm -hmm. do something or to do something differently will give other people confidence to do the same and then collectively you change mm -hmm. that oppressive culture of Definitely. harassment and abuse. Definitely. And yeah, I mean, I in, uh, hopefully in most cases it's as simple as being very direct and saying stop. Yeah. Um, and if it goes beyond that, then, I mean, there has to be other 
well, there are supposed to be other things in place to take care of that, but I don't know necessarily that there are. Yeah, I mean, well, in but a lot of these places, it's not like, um, <laughs> it's not like a very distinct chain of command. Right. So, you know, you kind of got to deal with what you have mm-hmm. in front of you and, mm-hmm. you know, take matters into your own hands sometimes. And like I said, definitely advocate for people who aren't comfortable doing so. Definitely. I mean, I, I don't. I like to be careful about when talking about other women on the show because I don't like to necessarily bash other women, but I think it's important to be critical sometimes of women, especially women who are very visible in the public eye. Um, and so Kate was telling me a story before about Ivanka Trump and a comment that her brother made about her experiences. I'll let you tell the story, Kate. So um, it was after the whole grabber by the... Pussy, can I say pussy? Scandal. Um, it I was, mean, our president said it, so. It, it, yeah, it was uh, right after Pussygate, and mm-hmm. Eric Trump was asked about how he would handle it had his sister Ivanka been treated like that at work. Had any man said something disgusting about her or to her. And he he actually said, and I can't quote him for verbatim because I don't actually have the quote in front of me, um, Ivanka would never put herself in that position. <laughs> You can't see me, but I'm rolling my eyes I'm right face now. calming, just saying it. It <laughs> makes me sick. Um, obviously, what these very privileged people don't know is that most women don't have the choice but to put themselves in that position because, you know, obviously you need to keep your lights on and, you know, pay your rent. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said, there are very real social and financial consequences to reporting abuse. And it's not right but they exist, and um, privileged people like Ivanka Trump should be the ones stepping up and advocating for more vulnerable women Mm -hmm. instead of saying, I would never put myself in that position, or having Mm -hmm. her brother say she would never put Mm -hmm. herself, like, she's a superior person, Mm -hmm. because... And to be fair, she is not the one who said that, it is her brother, Yeah. and so we're coming from a male perspective of someone who has more privilege than anyone and I mean not just because a a follow-up question that I want to ask but I don't have an answer for is um where why is this even a problem to begin with and that answer right there is why this is a problem to begin with the fact that you know a, a man in a position of power sees it as a woman's fault for that happening to her and I mean that can go hand in hand with talking about rape culture and um just the way that our society views victims in these types of situations. And I, I don't know. I, the fact that people have to be scared to go to work or have to think about these situations is sickening. Um, it definitely is a very real reality. <laughs> That's a terrible sentence. Yeah. A real, it's, it's a real problem. But I don't know. Getting to the root of the problem is... I don't know what the root of the problem is. Is it just that's how men are? I don't want to say that. <laughs> I think men are feeling increasingly threatened by women becoming more part of the workforce. Like, mm-hmm. we actually make up most of the workforce now mm-hmm. by, you know, a narrow margin, but we do. Um, and I think it's their way of maybe retaliating um, because they feel less powerful um, when they used to be all-powerful, um, and mm-hmm. also women, you know, women are also the majority in um, degree holders, and mm-hmm. 
but they're pushed into the lowest uh, earning jobs. So mm -hmm. there is definitely like some disparity that men like to keep that way. Um, mm -hmm. But like, what would happen if one of those the men who is a person who's like a customer in a restaurant that sexually harasses someone? I just wonder what would happen if you asked that person, like, why are you doing this? What, where does that come from? And I don't know that they would have a good answer. No, and that's not a position that I want anyone to put them. I don't want you to put yourself in that position at work, asking, you know, the next person who tries to say something to you, just sit them down and say, listen, sir, I think we have something to talk about here. I don't want anyone to do that, but I just am interested in what goes on in someone's mind who thinks that that is the way to relate to another human. I think the clinical explanation for that is very different from what their answer would be if you had asked them that. I think okay, their answer would be something, well, I mean, I've heard this too, you know, um, what, I can't, I can't call you beautiful, like, mm -hmm. I can't give you a compliment, and, you know, I can't give you a compliment, in quotes, mm -hmm. usually follows, like, a very disgusting comment. Right. I will say that. Um, it's usually not a compliment. <laughs> right. Um but they will play it off like, oh, I was joking, or I was just trying to compliment you, or be nice to you, mm -hmm. or and you're just being a bitch, or mm -hmm. you're being rude to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they're really just trying to backpedal because they were called out on doing something you mm -hmm. know, inappropriate, um, and trying to soften it a little bit, mm -hmm. and you know, make it a little more presentable and more easy to swallow. But um, so I mean, I guess ultimately, then it is power. It is. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, in so earlier, I think episode two, I talked about this. Um, we talked about um, the women in Mexico City who carry around glitter guns with them. And then when they get catcalled on the street, they whip out the glitter gun. Um, and they look like real guns. So for a moment, the guy is kind of like in a panic. And then they shoot at them and glitter comes out. And then afterwards, the men have many of the comments the comments that you just said, that's the comments that they make. Like, hey, I didn't mean it. I was just complimenting you. But for a moment, they have that fear and their power is taken away for a moment. It just kind of is a role reversal. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but that just, I feel like, relates a little bit here. And I, and I don't mean to minimize that because I think that's really brave, first mm -hmm. of all, because, like, they could actually, you know, that could be very dangerous. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I've seen, like, women just talk back to men on the street mm -hmm. that catcalled them and the man would like charge at them and like be right. very aggressive. So like that is very brave of them. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, that's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> just glitter guns. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I just making people think for a second about the way their actions or their words might affect other people is definitely like it does give you some power. Mm -hmm. And in that second after you say what you have to say and before they backpedal and, you know, make their statements more palatable, mm -hmm. you do feel that mm -hmm. and you see it in their faces and as they're trying to collect their thoughts and it makes you feel justified. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it all comes down to empathy. And I think that with more empathy and making more people feel what other people feel, I think that could solve a lot of problems that we have in our world and that's why we tell stories like this and that's why we it's important to hear other people's points of view and try to see it from their side uh, and if it's a person who's not willing to do that you have to make them see the other side 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of people are willfully ignorant and they've been doing these things forever. You know, older mm -hmm. men sometimes, you know, they'll call mm -hmm. you honey and grab your hand and stuff like that. And they really don't think that it's wrong because mm -hmm. nobody's ever told them. Mm -hmm. Some people just need to be told they're not bad people. They're not, you know, maybe some of them are doing it. It's like this power trip. They've just always done it. Right. And they think it's okay. Right. But, you know, if it makes you uncomfortable and it's not okay to you, then you need to say something. Otherwise, nobody's ever going to know. Sure. Okay, so we'll move into um, just learning a little more about Kate at this point. So, Kate, tell us what your story is. And you, as always, you can interpret that however you'd like. Okay, um, I'm originally from Atlantic City, New Jersey, and I moved to Buffalo, New York five years ago where I met you. And, um, Here we uh, are. <laughs> yeah. All these years later. Um, and I live with my cat, Morris, and my boyfriend, Jordan, and uh, I really love Buffalo. Um, I'm a very reflective and analytical person, always have been. Um, I see the world as really complicated, and I always try to make sense of it, and it's an obsession of mine, and I enjoy talking to people and hearing their stories, and... Um, I'm fascinated by like ordinary people's stories uh, mm -hmm. because I think everybody's very unique and they have unique perspectives and you know exactly what we were talking about like uh, when you talk to people and you're able to empathize with them and see the world through their eyes it's mm -hmm. very interesting to me uh, yeah I really like history and how it relates to current events um, Especially now. <laughs> it's, it's actually a little scary. I'm not liking it as much, but it's still like very interesting to me. Um, and uh, I like language and music, and I really like having epiphanies about like the etymologies of words and stuff like that. And like I think that's really fun, and I know it's really dorky. No, I um, love everything that you say. I'm agreeing with you. Like, I like all of this stuff, too. Um, and that's why we're friends. Yeah, I like origins of social customs mm -hmm. and I, I always think that stuff is so interesting and uh yeah and like just reading about places that I'll never go to like Bhutan and Tuba and like no, I'm say never. um Feynman wasn't even able to go to Tuba unfortunately <laughs> um I would love to that would be awesome <laughs> but yeah I also I have a really strong sense of justice too and I like to um read up on women's issues a lot and uh, underserved people's issues. And, and I really think that it's upsetting when people are underserved by systems and people who are supposed to protect them. That makes me mad. True. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so along that line, in a way, what does it mean to be a woman in 2017, and what does it mean to you to be a woman in 2017? These, so what it means to be a woman now is, like, kind of a strange thing these days, because uh, with modern surgery and medical advances, being a woman is possible for anybody. You can be a biological female if you want. And mm -hmm. I think, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I, uh... It's a little scary to think of that at first when you're unfamiliar with that idea, and I was at one point, and um, 
yeah, it's, I think being a woman, like, transcends uh, your biological makeup, it transcends double X chromosomes, now, mm -hmm. um, it's basically how you identify yourself, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, being born a man, you can self-actualize as a woman, and I think that's a very new and awesome thing. Mm -hmm that you can just be yourself now. If you identify as female or you feel that you are more feminine than masculine, you can be that. Um, what does it mean to me to be a woman? Um, that's, a, that's a weird thing because also I think femininity has changed. Like, I would agree with that. Yeah, it, and Teresa was talking about heteronormativity mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of the changes that have happened in recent years with, you know, as I was just saying, gender and things like that. Um, you can dress any way you want these days. You can, I mean, for the most part, in Western culture. Right, right. This is not, uh, is not the same for most cultures in the world. But, yeah, you can be more or less feminine and still identify as a female. You can be... Um, you can wear jeans, you can play football, you can skateboard, uh, you know. I, as a kid, was always very resistant to being, like, very feminine. Mm -hmm. My mom tried to teach me how to sew, I didn't want to do that, because it was too girly. Um, Sounds I like really hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't want to cook, like, mm -hmm. I, like, really resisted everything mm -hmm. that was typically feminine. Um, as I got older, I started, like, wearing dresses and wearing mm -hmm. makeup and liking boys and things like that, but, um, yeah, I, uh, kind of wonder what I would be like had I not <laughs> ever worried about what boys thought of me, or, mm -hmm. you know, if I could just be that kid forever that, like, played in the dirt with slugs, and... <laughs> I have a... Sorry, I'm gonna hijack for a minute. <laughs> I have a story that, like, you just kind of reminded me of. When I was in third grade, um, I... I don't know, I was, like, coloring with a pink crayon, and a bunch of kids, like, started calling me Pinky, and for some reason, as a third grader, I was so offended, um, because, like, pink is for girls, and I was upset by it, and I was, after that for a long time, I was like, I hate the color pink, just keep it away from me, and I, like, wouldn't wear it, and I was just very resistant to it and now looking back on it I have no idea why so I wonder if that was something you know maybe in our generation when we were around that age that it like wasn't cool to be girly I think maybe you're right a little bit like I definitely had neighbor friends who were also girls that mm -hmm. were really into playing with Ninja Turtles and stuff oh my god and I loved Ninja Turtles yeah and like you know obviously we grew up in the 90s we weren't forced to wear dresses unless you you know you went to Catholic school so yeah but that was probably like the extent of it I don't think I don't remember I wear a dress like every day now because I'm it's too hot in the summer but I I don't know that then I didn't really wear a lot of dresses or skirts also this brings me to something that I've always wondered oh uh oh <laughs> so Traditionally, women wear skirts mm -hmm. and men wear pants, but biologically, doesn't it make sense for men to wear skirts and women to wear pants? Think about that. I suppose. Don't they feel less crowded? They were but I think in other 
cultures where people do things that are more like ergonomically, you know, making sense, I think they do. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, definitely like Middle Eastern dress, mm-hmm. traditional Middle Eastern dresses, like mm-hmm. a little more airy, and like you know, men wear garments that don't enclose their legs. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. We need to look up now the origins of pants. <laughs> yeah, what the hell is up with pants? <laughs> yeah, like, I... Interesting. Yeah, but I, now circling back, like, as products of the 90s, did, did we just not wear... We just wore pants. We're just yeah. girl, girls wearing pants, going to take your daughter to work day. I think we were the product of a generation. I don't know how old your parents are, but my parents are... I don't are, know if I'm allowed to say. They're, you they're, don't have to. They're baby boomers. I'll don't, say that. Okay, mine are too. Um, <laughs> my mom is 66, and like she remembers like growing up in the 50s mm-hmm. and 60s, and she always had to wear skirts and mm-hmm. was made to grow her hair long and like curl it at night and like always look like a prim proper little princess. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when she got older and had kids of her own, she rebelled vicariously through her children. And like we had very short Dorothy Hamill <laughs> rose haircuts. Um, Love it. It could be either. Um, and we never wore pants. Like my mom would never ever make me wear a dress unless mm-hmm. it was Easter and I hated mm-hmm. it. Um, I do remember wearing dresses on Easter and Christmas, but otherwise, I mean, wearing my uniform skirt to school, but otherwise, not really. Yeah. I don't remember my life very well, though, so I feel like my parents are going to listen to this and then set me straight, so we'll, we'll <laughs> see. <laughs> I hope my mom listens to it. <laughs> Send it to her. I will. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think, like, also my mom is definitely a feminist like mm-hmm. 100% like uh she was feminist back in the 70s when she worked mm-hmm. at the post office and was sexually harassed and oh, being mm-hmm. you know paid less than men that mm-hmm. she worked with and things like that she always tells me these stories about like you know how she couldn't apply for a home loan by herself uh unless my dad was present um how my dad was able to like pick up her paychecks from work I can't with all like I just the more I learn and the more I think about this stuff, like we are just so lucky for the women that came before us because we take, I mean, I take so many things for granted. Like even something as simple as not being forced to wear a dress and skirt every day. The fact that we can wear pants, the fact that I'm still like blown away by this, that I didn't even consider this. We're able to run in marathons and participate in sports and do all of these things that people that came before us, you know, pick up your own paycheck and be an advocate for your own health care. And, like, these are things that women couldn't do not too long ago. Yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine. I forget what, who was running for president. His wife had cancer. John Kerry? No. no. It, was, it was a while ago. I forget. My sister was telling me the story, and I wish I could remember who it was. Uh, his wife went in for tests, and she, no, she was running for office. Oh. She had cancer. But the doctor wouldn't tell her they told her husband. And he kept it a secret from her so that she would run for office. What? Continue to run for office. This is crazy. That's unbelievable. It's awful that, like, a doctor could tell a husband her, his wife's medical history and... Not her. And her ailments and not her. And that somebody That's could wild. keep that from her. Yeah, absolutely. Did she win? 
she died because she didn't know she had cancer. Oh my god. Yep. I'm just baffled. Yeah, these are things that actually used to happen in the United States. That is until very recently. Oh my gosh, I can't like I. That makes me sick. And it was our mother's generations that changed that. Mm -hmm. It was that's an insane to think about. Mm -hmm. And our mother's generation, those baby boomers, put us miles ahead of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I just like. I just don't even know what to say to that. I can't eat like. These are things that, like, adult things that I, like, complained about doing, like, having to go to the doctor and having to, like, pay bills and things like that, that, I mean, they're really a privilege. <laughs> I mean, in a way. they are, I mean, <laughs> these are pretty fundamental rights that, like, at one time were considered a privilege. Well, right. And, like, That's we are, pri- I mean, yes, of course, like, we are privileged to have these while so many other women in the world do not have these same rights. Right. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing to be a woman in 2017. Um, Definitely. There, we still have a long way to go, but... We do. And, I mean, as we've said many times throughout this episode, as, you know, people in the Western world um, who have these privileges, it is kind of our job to advocate for people who are less able to advocate for themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, and, um, you know, you think about the way women are treated in certain parts of the world, and um, even women in their communities, like, older women in their communities are enforcing, you know, female genital mutilation Mm -hmm. and things like that because they're afraid of the consequences of speaking out against it, you know. It's scary to change a system. It, there are grave consequences to it and people are not 100% behind it because they don't understand the realities of a new system until they actually have experience with it. Right. Um, and then you have a bunch of enemies from the old system that, you know, I mean, could actually kill you in some parts of the world. Right. And I mean, I think about this a lot, like if I were born in a different part of the world or with a different religion or different, just a different situation. Um, if you, something that I look at now and say, wow, that's like really crazy that people do that. I can't believe they do that. If I grew up with that, that would just be the norm. It would. And you might not like it. It could just be an uncomfortable reality. Right. Right. And that's, I don't know, because I, working with, with young girls, they often say like, well, why didn't they just stand up for themselves? Why didn't they just not do that? And a lot of the times the answer is, well, they didn't know it was wrong or they didn't know that it could be another way. Yeah. So, interesting. It is interesting. Lots of food for thought here. All right, so we are going to move into stories of subversion. Um, And so the story that I have today is parsed together from a couple different articles um, from Wired, the website, and then I never wrote down the name of the other website, so there's another website. Um, But I will post these articles on Facebook so you guys can take a look at them and get the full story. Um, But this story is about some Hausa women, which that's their ethnicity, and they live in the northern region of Nigeria. Um, And they write something called, let me make sure I pronounce this correctly, the Tadafan Soyaya, which means in Hausa, books of love. Um, And so these are actually, they're fictional romance novels that women in Nigeria write um, about all different kinds of things. They write um, 
you know, about things that happen in their daily lives. They write about some issues such as AIDS and HIV. Um, they talk about marrying young and sex trafficking and prostitution and adultery. Um, but these are all based around love stories. And so they're these like dramatic novels, probably what, you know, I don't know. I'm picturing like covers with like Fabio on them from the United States. So it's similar to that. And I did read that these women, um, sometimes the covers have like, like, um, different actresses from like the Nigerian films. I think they call them Nollywood films, um, kind of like Bollywood, but Nollywood and just like having like very dramatic, um, pictures on the cover. Um, but this is a very interesting thing to do because they're coming from this very patriarchal society. Um, and this is the part of Africa that's overrun by Boko Haram. Um, so if you remember back a couple years ago when, you know, the hashtag went viral, bring back our girls that were taken by that jihadist group, that's, um, this is the area that we're talking about. So this is a real, really subversive act, um, for them to do. Um, and so just a little more information about it. So the way that they, a lot of these women, um, are actually, I don't know about a lot, but some of the women are women that practice the type of, um, Islam where they can't leave the home. And so they actually write these books by hand at home and then pass them on to other people, um, or publishers to type them. Um, and then they end up self-publishing or binding. Like I'm picturing the way that I read, I pictured like printing out like millions of copies, well not millions, but like hundreds of copies at like a Kinko's with like the staple on it and then selling them. And so they sell these in the marketplace and um, they're pretty popular. And I didn't realize this, but they started, this started back in the 80s. And um, the most well-known author, her name is Balaraba Ramat Yakubu. Uh, and she's the author of Young at Heart and Sin is a Puppy That Follows You Home. What a name for a book. <laughs> Sin is a puppy that follows That's you home. So and that was actually the first Hausa novel written by a woman to be published in, or to be translated and published in English. Um, so I might have to read this book. I think we might have to bring our book club back and read this book. Sin is a puppy um, that follows you home. Yeah. And so this is a story about a man who cheats on his wife um, and then takes a sex worker, a prostitute, as his second wife. So interesting. Um, but like I said, this is just such a subversive act because you have these women that are in the society, um, and after kind of examining that these are being sold in marketplaces and they're really popular and they're kind of like informing the culture for young people in a lot of ways, um, they decided in their government to form a censorship board to read through the books and make sure that they're appropriate and following like their societal and religious rules, um, and it, I even read that they sometimes have burned the books if they don't fit with those standards. Um, but, I mean, these women are still cranking them out, still writing them and selling them. And also another kind of subversive act from it is that they're making money from them. And some people are making a living from the books, which, again, is something to kind of elevate their position in society. And so I just think this is such an important thing, um, especially in such an oppressive society, because... They're sharing stories, and I mean, that's like obviously something I really believe in here. It's just telling stories and learning from other people's experiences um, and having a little fun with it and building literacy, too. There are just so many things about this story that I love. Um, and so 
there's actually a book. So in one of the articles, it mentions there's a book of photographs by Glenna Gordon called Diagram of the Heart. Um, I haven't actually like looked at this, and I don't really know that much about it. But it seems it appears to be a series of photographs um, documenting some of these women that write these books, these books of love. So that is the, my story of subversion from this week which I just love. <laughs> That's awesome. I would love to read more of those titles of those books. <laughs> those are the only two that were translated into English. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely going to follow up on Sin is a Puppy That Follows You Home. Let's read it. <laughs> Aloud. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Kate has a story as well. Okay. So, um, a couple years ago, actually it was a long time ago now, five years ago, I watched a documentary called The Day My God Died, and it's about uh, mm-hmm. children, female children in Nepal who were sold by their fathers to traffickers to be sex slaves, basically, in Mumbai, mm-hmm. and um, basically their lives are very sad. Is they, that to make money for the family? Is yes, that- it's like a very depressed economy mm-hmm. in Nepal, and a lot of these people are very simple farmers, mm-hmm. and they sell their daughters, mm-hmm. and that's how they make money. Um, and it's, it's extremely sad. A lot of them, I don't think they even know where their daughters are going. Um, but they end up in terrible conditions in slums in Mumbai or other cities, Kolkata and uh, New mm-hmm. Delhi, in red light districts, and they service hundreds of customers a day. And oh Yeah, and uh, basically when they're worn out, they die on the streets, and it's terrible. That's so sad. Uh, they can't go back to their families because once they've now been they fired, shamed their families. They they shame their families. So um, a woman in Nepal in Kathmandu, I'm gonna butcher her name. Anuradha Kerala, I guess that sounds great. Started an organization uh, to house victims of human trafficking from Nepal, and it's called. Uh, Maiti Nepal and Maiti basically translates there's no actual translation into English mm-hmm. but Maiti basically is pertaining to the woman's birthplace or her mother's home which is like of sentimental value to these Nepali girls because it's the home that they can't go back to it's the home that they forsake when they're married which these girls are never married but mm-hmm. it's the home that they forsake and that they long for because they become a part of their their husband's family. So Maiti Nepal is where these victims of sex trafficking go if they escape or recently Maiti Nepal has liberated victims mm-hmm. of sex trafficking in Mumbai. Nice. So uh, these Nepali girls go there and a lot of them live out the rest of their lives because they have uh, HIV, AIDS, um, you know, in advanced stages and uh, they're educated. They do, um, this organization does a lot of outreach work with the girls' families to educate them on what they're actually doing to their daughters and educates them against selling their daughters. Uh, they, they provide a lot of uh, community education about sex trafficking mm-hmm. and um, safe sex, HIV AIDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, I, I really recommend that documentary to anybody. It's, um, What's the name of it? The Day My God Died. Okay. Yeah, it, um, so a lot of it 
you know, they interview farmers who have sold their daughters, and then they show the conditions that these girls live in, which is very hard to watch. And then the last part of the documentary, the last third of the documentary, uh, documents this organization, Mighty Nepal, and shows, like, the day-to-day -day lives of a lot of the girls that live there, and, you know, obviously they have counseling, they have, mm -hmm. uh, they have school, um, they teach the girls to read, a lot of them weren't able to read when they mm -hmm. went there. It's a, it's a really great organization. They actually were just awarded a lot of money and a grant by the U.S. government a few years ago, too. I think it was, like, $500,000. Oh, wow. Yeah, because uh, sex trafficking in Nepal is a huge problem. Uh, they, the traffickers go for Nepali girls because they're lighter-skinned, mm. and they look more Bollywood. Interesting. Yeah, and they're easier to sell in Mumbai. Ooh, that's uh, some heavy stuff there. Yeah, it's, again, we're, you know, very lucky to live in Western society, even with all of its problems. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, um, do you know, I wonder if there's a way to donate to that organization? I'm sure there is. Um, I actually just tried to go to their website, and it wasn't working for some reason. Hmm. Um, well, again, that's something, we can look it up and, and post it to, um, social media so people can take a look at it. Yeah. All right, so I think we're ready to close out here. Kate, is there anything else that you'd like to add that you haven't said yet? Um, I promised that I wouldn't say a few things, and I still, you know, um, hi, Tony. Um, <laughs> I don't think we... <laughs> down I think... with the patriarchy. <laughs> that, see, that's fine. We can say that. <laughs> DWTP. We <laughs> don't <laughs> <laughs> well, Kate, thank you so much for being my guest. I think that we, we have a lot to think about after today's episode. Lots of food for thought. Um, I always appreciate your, your thoughtfulness and your intelligence and your well-readedness. That's not a word, but <laughs> thank I'll you say it <laughs> Well, thank you so much. All right, and friends, remember, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram um, and our website, womankindpodcast.com. Um, so shoot us an email if there's anything that we missed that you want to talk about. All right, bye.